So longtime listeners of the show will probably remember Jay Davis, who's been on a number of times. Well, in addition to being a friend and a consulting client, I'm excited to say now that he's also a sponsor of this show. Last year, when I was spending a lot of time at his company's office, he started a new company called Pillow Cube, which is this awesome memory foam rectangle pillow that's tall enough for me to be a side sleeper, but not have to have my head sag down like when I try to fold over my regular pillows. It's really pretty amazing, and for any side sleepers like me, it's great so we don't have to wake up with shoulder pain. On top of that, it's been really fun for me to see him have so much success because it's been selling like crazy. Anyways, if you're a side sleeper, I highly recommend going to pillowcube.com and getting one for yourself. You know, I think times are also changing, right? I don't know if you saw recently Kamala Harris is on the cover of Vogue in her Converse, right? In her tennis shoes, right? And I think times are changing, right? I think, you know, in the history of everything that was eccentric, that, that we think is eccentric, there was a time when it wasn't, right? Like, I will say that delivering software for healthcare is eccentric right now. You know, using our platform to get better health, I think people think it's weird. And I think people think I am Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. Today on the show, I've got Renee Dua. Renee, thanks for making time for this. Thanks so much for having me. So for people who don't know about Heal.com, tell us about it. Certainly. So we are a software platform. We're a software company. And what we aim to do is specifically to use our software to improve patient accessibility to care. So we might have a patient book on the Heal platform, book a house call, and we might find out that she's diabetic. We'll set her up with a device to check her blood sugar and a week later do a video chat to see how her blood sugars are doing. So we, we like to use our software to give our patients a very high touch, highly coordinated experience to care. And can you and tell people about the pricing and your background? So what we aim to do is to be a network with all the major insurances in every city. So that if you download the Heal app and register, you can find out if we can accept your insurance. And that means if we accept your insurance, that it's typically the cost of the same copay you would you would pay in a doctor's office. Now, we also recognize that many patients do not have health insurance. And for this very reason, what we focus on is keeping the cash pay price as reasonable as possible so that patients aren't forced to use the emergency room or an urgent care to to get health care and to get access to a physician. So what does that look like on average or what is the range between maybe? I would say 85% of our patients use insurance and about 15% use our cash pay price. I will say that because our cash pay price is so affordable, many patients who have high deductibles or you know plans that are really there for a crisis situation will often use our app as well. Yeah, what is the what is the cash option? What is that so end up costing in a price range? About at this time, it's about one hundred fifty nine dollars. It's funny. You feel like sometimes if a hospital gives you three aspirins, they charge that much. Oh, right? absolutely. Actually, they charged 
three times that much, but yes, your point is well taken. You know, if you go to an urgent care, the way urgent care works is it's tiered pricing. So the moment you walk into that waiting room, it's $200, right? And then for every additional thing you need, it's like a cart, right? They're adding to the cart. And so if you need a medication or if you need an EKG or if they want to put a stethoscope on you, there's going to be additional fees for that, right? So urgent care is very expensive. And many times you are disincentivized as a patient to use urgent care. But of course, if you live even in a city like Los Angeles or Chicago or Atlanta, you may not have access to your doctor. Right now, especially with the pandemic, many doctors are finding it difficult to stay in business. And so they also need the protection of their insurance uh, colleagues. And so we recognize all of these open holes and, and try to help where we can. So I'm excited that this is happening because when I think about like, even though I didn't get to have doctors come to my house and my parents didn't, when I think about like my grandparents or my great grandparents, where the doctor came to you instead of sitting in those That's horrible right. waiting rooms forever. That's and right. like, you know, I don't think a doctor has been on time in the history of doctors that I've ever been to. Right. And, and look, I, I want to say to you that you can imagine, especially in the middle of a pandemic, our patients are sick. They need us. We do run late at the moment. It happens. You know, you can't predict what's going to happen in a house call setting. To give you an example, if my mascara shows up a day late on Amazon Prime, it upsets me, there's no question, but I'm gonna keep using Amazon. They're a credible service, right? We, we yeah. know we can trust them. With Heal, we're building credibility and we're building trust as every time we launch a new market. And so it's important for us to be on time. But it's also important for me to share as an ambassador of this company that the reality is you're not a tube of mascara. When you're sick, we need to spend time with you. And if that means we run late, so be it. We have to do what's best for the patients. So the answer is somewhere in the middle. But you're right. We're, we're getting there. But even given that, if I get to let's say I've got to wait for a bit because yeah. for the exact reason, if I get to wait at home, either getting my work done or watching my Netflix by myself, you know, right. this you, is completely different than you like, are right. you are in the comfort of your home, rearranging my whole life to be somewhere where it's almost guaranteed. They're just, they're not going to, they're not going to be there Correct. when they say, when they say, Correct. or you're going to be waiting there for three hours or, or whatnot. And, and so th this is precisely what we are worried about. We want to make sure that you are in the comfort of your home, you're in a private and secure location, and we will get there. And well over 90% of the time we do, right? Can you tell us a little bit about your medical background and why you decided this is the company you wanted to start? Absolutely. So by training, I'm a kidney specialist, actually, and I have a practice and I actively see patients who have kidney disease. But several years ago, when I got married and began a family with my husband, we had a very difficult time having children. I was sick myself as a patient. And once I did start having children, I've had issues with their birth every single time. So seven years ago, my little boy's about to be seven, Nick and I were driving home from an emergency room visit, and it was a terrible experience. We were so worried about my son. And we waited for a very long time to be seen by a physician who it happened I had trained with. And so when he saw me, he said, Brene, what are you doing here, right? You should know what to do in these cases. And I said, look, I don't want to know. I want to think like a mom, right? And so 
Nick and I started this company to not just deliver access, but also get out of the way of the doctor-patient relationship, right? We believe that patients have questions. They cannot be rushed to get answers in a 10-minute office visit. They might not even know what the questions are. They might be misdiagnosed. They might have a diagnosis they didn't even know about. And we think that in a house call setting, you have accessibility at your fingertips. A doctor can see how you live. Are there Cheetos or a pack of cigarettes on the kitchen countertop? What can we do to help you make better decisions, right? Given your certain circumstances. A lot of those things are taken for granted in an office setting. And that's what we want to get. We want to get corrected. Yeah, so I love that idea. I think most people listening will probably love that idea. What have been some of the fun achievements and accomplishments over these last seven years? Well, we've accomplished so much. First of all, I get to work with a team of visionaries, right? I come to work every single day with a team of engineers and business development people, and specifically our operations team who are very near and dear to my heart. And they think like patients. Every day, it is in their interest to get a patient taken care of. That is exactly how they think. No matter how small an achievement that is, that's how we focus on building our company. Company. The the I get to see patients in their homes as well, and I can tell you there is for a physician nothing more satisfying than your patient telling you thank you. I feel better. You have helped me. You know that is why we go into medicine. It's not for the big bucks, right? It's so that we are providing a service, and I get to provide that service. So from that aspect, this is a complete win for me. So I'm interested in your experience. You spent all these years to become a doctor and now you get to add the learning curve of entrepreneurship on top of that. Yes. You know, we all know, we've all heard these statistics of, you know, nine out of 10 businesses fail before they hit year five. So even just starting there, you know, there's a lot of medical startups. There's a lot of people trying to innovate in a space that uh, is unfortunately heavily burdened with bureaucracy, right? There's a lot of opportunity for change. Even just making it this far, you know, you you beat ninety percent of businesses so far. <laughs> what do you what do you think you've done differently? Why do you think you've done this when so many other medical startups are are not able to even last this long? Well, first, I'd be remiss if I didn't share that my partner in this enterprise is my husband Nick, and Nick, who has been a CEO for many many years is a master fundraiser, right? So we are very lucky to have Nick in our corner. He's also himself a visionary in healthcare. He is smart beyond comprehension. He understands regulation and law. And he also understands that what we are trying to do is light years ahead of what most insurance companies think is good healthcare. And I think that's an important thing to recognize, right? The business of healthcare in America is not designed for patients, right? It is a big gimmick to increase taxes and code differently. And, you know, we're waiting to see when Medicare catches on, right? It's, it's not what it should be. Now, that being said, I've always believed, and I'll always believe, no matter what happens to heal, that when you do good work, the patients will come, right? When you are a good doctor, you will be seeing patients and you will be busy seeing patients. And if we can agree that patients should be seen with a doctor paying for service or helping a doctor have an existence financially, then I think we'll be just fine, right? I've never been in the corner of doing anything that is questionable, unethical, improper. 
And I think that shows in the work we're doing. Do I think we're perfect? By no means. Do I think this is hard? You bet. And I tell every single person that comes to work at this company, this isn't easy, right? If you're joining us, you are an entrepreneur too. So I think I've also made a good effort to surround myself with people who are entrepreneurs, who believe in patient care, who believe in our mission, and it shows. And I think that's a big reason we are successful. I work with visionaries. Yeah. Well, you know, in some ways, these kind of healthcare startups and and stuff like that can almost be trendy. You know, it's cool to be doing stuff like this. What are some of the rookie mistakes you see out there? from other folks getting into the space? So the, the most critical I thing I think right now is because we're in a pandemic, people think that, for example, telemedicine is enough. It's not enough, right? Patients need to feel your hand on their shoulder and know they're okay. Patients need to have a coordinated care experience. I'm not saying that every doctor needs to be in your living room all the time, but if you're a diabetic and we can remotely monitor your blood sugar and check in by video in two weeks, that gives you enormous peace of mind. And that's why we've built a software platform that's so high touch. I also don't think the best care is in the office building, right? I think right now, many people don't wanna leave the house for good reason, but I also think doctors are being asked in their office practices to do what is unattainable, to complete what is not possible. It is not possible to properly take care of 40 patients in a day to make a living. That is not good care. And doctors agree, and that's why they come and work for us. So I I wouldn't even say they're rookie mistakes. I think us doctors, we don't necessarily want to run a business. And so we go where we think we can make a living, get our loans paid off, and provide the service we are trained to provide. But it turns out that those aren't necessarily the right answers either. You've got to do a few things to give patients proper access to care. And that that is what, again, I, I can't say, you know, we've got it all figured out over here, but I can say we're making an enormous impact on the communities in which we serve. Well, that's great. When, when you think about systems that scale and how to you know, how to build an organization that can do this instead of just you doing this. What have been some of the most important principles to you? Well, by far the most important principle is to think like a patient, right? It's not that I am doing this alone. I am doing this with people who are also going to be patients. You and me and the insurance companies and the, the politicians, the one thing we all have in common, we are all going to be patients right? What kind of care do you want when you are a patient? Do you want a doctor that spends nine minutes with you in the office setting? Does that provide you comfort? I don't think so, right? Do you want a doctor that gives you a phone call and says, hey, look, I'm checking in, you're okay. That's not enough care, right? So the most critical principle is to think like a patient. What would you want for yourself if you were sick? How would you feel that we were giving you the best help? Yeah. What's your second? I would say the second and most important thing is is that accessibility piece. It's folly to think that every person who needs access can use software, right? Right now, Medicare has a stipulation that video is a required modality to provide care. There are patients who do not have Wi-Fi, who do not have tablets, who do not have iPhones. What do we do to help them? For us, that's where the house call comes in 
right? We know that there are those patients for whom we have to go to the home. We know there are those patients for whom a telephone call is going to be the only way they can achieve access to care. On our website, seven years in, we have a toll-free number, right? You're not going to toll-free dial most delivery companies, right? We make it so. We make that accessibility a real thing. So I think keeping in mind that requiring software actually becomes a bit prejudicial and you have to help those patients. They need us just as much as the next guy. So we want to make sure they they know they can use our services for sure. Yeah. You know, I'm interested in any differences you've seen. You know, uh, when we when we talked last week for a minute, I mentioned that I also used to live in San Fernando Valley and I've spent yes. a number of yes. years in Southern California. Yes. Yes. As you've expanded, so and let's just start with this. What geographies are you in right now? Certainly. So we operate in eight states and more are coming. So right now we are in, throughout California, Washington State, Seattle, and Spokane. We are in D.C. proper and North Virginia. We are in Maryland. We are in New York, all the boroughs. We are in New Jersey. We're in Georgia. We are actually launching Chicago. We are launching Savannah and Augusta, Georgia. We are going to be launching major metropolitan markets in Louisiana. We are going to be launching in Charlotte and Greenville uh, and Spartanburg, South Carolina. So we are growing very quickly, right? And the idea behind all those markets, just so you understand, is we have isolated those markets to be areas that have access problems. Interesting. So I guess my my first question is, you know, there's there's always hiccups when things change, right? So when you went from just being Southern California to being more than just Southern California, what's one of the hiccups you had to overcome? Well, I think you've already alluded to one of the bigger biggest hiccups, right? Is the culture of Baton Rouge or Lafayette, Louisiana aligned with the culture of how Heal wants to deliver deliver accessibility? And so as we launch a market, we have to focus on hiring physicians and providers who want to deliver care this way and who want to train their patients and teach their patients to receive care this way. I think we think, for example, that in Lafayette, people don't want to use software to deliver care. But I also think we are wrong. And I think if the right doctor joins our team, she will have an enormous impact on that accessibility piece. In the beginning, again, it's not going to be perfect. It's going to be hard. But when this doctor ramps up and learns how to do things the the way we train her on the heel platform, she's going to become a master of delivering care this way. I've seen it so many times. And as such, she's going to grow a population of patients in her neighborhood that are going to search for her as as their pillar of wellness. And, And so there's lots of hiccups in that story I told, but they will stop. (laughs) <laughs> so about how many doctors through your system, you know, across the organization total now? So we have well over a hundred physicians and providers on our platform. So my, my thought there is for CEOs, you know, we have a lot of entrepreneurs who listen to the show and we have a lot of investors that, you yes. know, they buy private companies and, and they're trying to help their, their portfolio companies grow. As they maybe think about opening up new locations, I'm interested in your thoughts on two things, both attracting those high quality candidates and two, what your selection process looks like when you're, you know, when you're all over the country and you can't be there in person with them 40 hours a week. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So, so for physicians, it's been very interesting, you know, thanks to opportunities like this one, the one you're giving me to talk now. And thanks to the press, we have a fair number of providers and physicians who just 
cold reach out to me or our recruiting site and apply to work here, right? They're totally aligned with this mission and vision. They're excited about our software. They've done their homework. I talk to doctors and providers like this on a weekly basis, right? Separately, they have friends, right? Their experience has been so wonderful and they want to work with us. And so they share their friends' resumes with us as well. And so that's been a huge form of growth. Frankly, we also move very quickly. And so we work with recruiters and we train those recruiters on what to look for. I have been well known to be the first person that many candidates talk to. And that's not because I'm bored or have nothing to do. It's because I want you to hear from the horse's mouth how you'll succeed at this company. And I often tell people who apply, this isn't an interview. This is information. If anything I'm saying doesn't resonate with you, don't work here, right? I'm as matter of fact as they come. And I know that we don't have a turnkey <laughs> operation, right? Of course, once I like a candidate, we do have a vetting process because you can imagine when we're going into patients' homes, we of course have very strict guidelines, not just clinically, but technologically that we require. A person has to have a thorough background check. You know, we, we have to make sure that a physician or provider is copacetic to go into a patient's home. Of course, you know, you want to know that our, our physicians are board certified or about to take the boards. They would have done a clinical quiz or two or three to make sure that they know how to properly care for patients. We, we actually do some culture fit as well. You know, our, our what market does that look directors. Like? So we, we ask a lot of questions, right? I mean, we're not one to necessarily use some of these HR quizzes that you can Google, but rather, again, because we are such an aligned team, our HR people know how a physician or provider will succeed. I'll give you an, ex uh, an example. If you're, again, we'll ask you, you know, do you expect to see a patient every 15 minutes? Do you want, you know, the patient panel to be handed to you? Do you know what to do when software breaks? And they don't have answers that really support the kind of practice we are building. We will politely tell them, look, it's not a fit and no harm, no foul, but this isn't the right gig for you. So with that process, you know, there's so many of us that build businesses that are maybe a little overly optimistic, you know, mm -hmm. like I get the sense you're, you're a little more like less likely to pull punches. You're a little more matter of fact. Okay? Yes. Yes. Some of us might be even more optimistic than you. Right. And <laughs> we get snookered by somebody who interviews well. Right. And you thoughts about, you know, like, listen, the, the professional industry is full of a lot of people who have been told you're special, right? And we, we all know stories about doctors with poor bedside manner, whatever, yeah. but they, there's many that can turn on the charm when needed, right? How do you, how do you get through that? Question. Let me say, and, and lucky for you, we are recording, right? But <laughs> let me say, this is a real problem, right? You should, if you are applying for a job, you should be honest. And you should not be snookering your employer because you will not last. And certainly, you know, we have also taken action for these kinds of employment issues, right? We have a probationary period and we have a ton of check-ins early on. Every 30 days, we check in with new hires. We go out in the field with new hires. We do video chats with new hires. We give them scorecards to say, this is how things are going well or not well. Certainly, we give people a chance to remediate. 
But there are those people who do apply and who have been full of it. And, you know, I had someone tell me, this looks like small print. There is no small print. This is the reality of your employment agreement. And this is what we expect you to do. And if you are full of nonsense, you won't work here, right? It's very simple. You know, we don't, we don't give, we don't pull any punches. So we don't work well with people who do, and they know right away. I think one of my favorite things that you said there is a probationary period. One of our, we also own a consulting firm and one of our clients is one of these big, you know, billion dollar public construction supply companies. And they actually do very little interviewing and they like do on the job probation, like almost immediately, (laughs) but they just tell you it's probation, you know? Yeah. And they, and they basically like, they just like keep extending it until they extend it into your permanent job. Interesting. Interesting. And uh, they're like, anyways, it's, it's something that's been winning me over more and more, but at the same time, like, do we have enough checks and balances during a probationary period? That's the point. Actually figuring out, you know That's what I mean? Are point. we just patting ourselves on the back for, right. for not taking it at first glance? We, we have to set you up for success too. That's our responsibility, right? The best thing I can do for someone that's going to work with me is set her up for success. I can train her. I can keep training her. But if I don't train her properly and thoroughly, it's not her fault. It's my fault. And I also take that responsibility very seriously. It's it's funny. I I oversee a lot of operations. And sometimes the team will say, well, so-and-so is not performing. And I will say, well, show me your training plan, right? It's not that it's so-and-so's fault. It could be the training plan. And so people deserve an impact on, on their, on the opportunity by you holding their hand training. One thing I will tell you, do I hold hands for too long? And am I maybe too nice? Yes. I've been told that before. Right. But I also think that we're a unique company and what we ask employees to do is different. So I want to build a culture that is compassionate and that is empathetic. And that starts with holding hands with the people who work for me so that they know to hold hands with their patients and, and, you know, their, their lower, lower levels, if you, if you will, right. If they're the hiring manager, their juniors need their support. And I want to make sure just as they are junior to me, I'm showing them how that's done. So what's an example of what's involved in your probationary period when people get started? Well, so what we do is we actually very seriously train. So for two or three weeks, we train, we do video training. We then go out into the field with you. We take you and and have you join a doctor or provider who's been with us. And this is true if you're not only working in the support side, right? The the software side, but it's also true for the, the folks who join us in the field. So for example, we have a controller, that controller will go on a house call. That controller will see how the operations dashboard works because when that controller gets note that a, an employee on the medical practice wasn't paid correctly, he or she has to understand why, right? Was the, was the visit not scheduled correctly? Was the mileage tracking device not on? What factors went into that employee in the field not being paid correctly, right? And so it's complicated. Separate to those, those, that training period, then we do check-ins. The check-ins are routinely 30, 60, and 90 days. And at the 30 days, we will actually go and say, do you have your badge? Do you have your white coat? Do, is your iPad working? Do you have enough chargers, right? Again, setting them up for success. 
By 60 days, if that provider or physician is not wearing her white coat, it's like, well, why, right? We went over this and you, you cannot just show up at someone's door, not in uniform, right? If by 90 days, this physician is not wearing her white coat, we have a problem, right? It is important that we know that the physician is in uniform, in badge, and the patient opens the door. It's a security measure. So that's a simple example. Can we, can we talk about that? You know, there's, there's so much said on the sense of like, you shouldn't judge a book by its cover. We need to, we need to be accepting of all people. Yes. And like the other side of that, that I feel like gets a little Pollyanna-ish sometimes as we, you know, talk in the business news or something is like, newsflash, graphic designers designed that cover to attract a certain kind of reader. Yeah. Like, I love Jason Bourne genre spy books right. and I can look at covers and have a pretty good sense if that's in my genre or not. Right. You know right. What I mean? Right. Right. And like, like, I think that's perfectly good advice for all of us to, to live ourselves. You know, like we should be trying to look past the surface. We should try and be connecting at human level, but like, if we're trying to be successful in business, like, shouldn't we set off the signals? Like, you know, how we dress or how we groom ourselves tells other people how we, what we believe about ourselves, you know? And so like wearing a uniform, like there's all these companies where it's like, nobody wants to wear a suit. It's not cool to wear suits. Yeah. And I'm like, yeah. listen, if you're in finance like us, dressing like you could work at Goldman Sachs is going to go in your favor. Yes. I Do you know what I mean? Like you. wearing a hoodie to that meeting you. is not going to help you make this sale. Regardless of the, if they should look past the hoodie, they're not going to. Like so that white coat seems great. awesome for your business. Yeah. So, so let me, let me say this, right? Okay. I think, first of all, I'm not big on judging a book, a book by the cover, right? And the reason is I don't necessarily look like a doctor in, let's say, Louisiana, right? I think maybe I do, maybe I don't. Let, let's pretend I don't. But there's a few, there's a few thoughts I want to share. First of all, I think there's a huge amount of distrust and mistrust of patients towards doctors and providers, mm. right? And I like the idea, and we also, by the way, know that women, studies have shown us that women provide better medical care, in fact, than men, which is interesting. This might be because they multitask better or they're more compassionate in a, in a soul kind of a way, right? In a cellular way. I don't know. But I say this to you because if I'm a man, I might want a male doctor, right? And if I'm a man and I have a physician who looks like me or speaks my language, right? I'm immediately going to be disarmed, right? Many women who have medical problems that are related to childbirth, they would like a female physician or provider. Mm -hmm. So I absolutely understand this. Now I'll say on a superficial note, right? Ear piercings, tattoos, pink hair. I've got to tell you, I have never cared, right? I've literally never cared. My star employees have all of the above and more, right? Some of my star physicians and providers do too. I'm so grateful that they are themselves. They feel they can be themselves. That's probably why they come and work with me because I want them to be themselves. So maybe because I'm not in the Goldman Sachs industry, I, I hire differently, right? I think that's fair to say. But one thing about me, I am different, right? I'm, I'm not David Bowie. I'm not a punk, but I think differently. And I'm going to admit that to you. I don't know that we'll necessarily capture that on a podcast, but I definitely am different from the average doctor working in a nine to five office practice. 
way different. And so I look for people that think out of the box and that means they may look different too. Right. And I support it. Yeah. I think about this issue because, and I guess I think about it more for the most client facing individuals in an organization, right? Like I went to, we were working on a TV show with Vice and they invited me down to mm-hmm. Venice Beach and I got to go, I got to go to the Vice offices. I thought it was super cool. Yeah. And you know what I mean? It's like, so I'm an art school dropout. Like I'm a skateboarder turned art school right. dropout. Right. Okay. So right. I'm like, these are my people in a lot yeah. of ways. Right? right. And I think about it for our business because we've got this media half of the business and then we've got the finance half of the business. And I think like, I, I'm so down with having this like super creative media side of the business. Let's put a skate ramp in the, in the building, you know what I mean? That kind of a side. Yeah. And, and then I do think like, if we're going to have, you know, large multifamily offices or, or billionaires come in and potentially invest with us, that we have a separate office that looks like a fancy law firm. I understand. And we look the part and we like, I guess this happened to, here's probably why it's seared into me. I was like a 24 year old kid making quite a bit of money for my age. And I probably looked like I was 16. Like I've always looked like, <laughs> okay, right? And, and I lost a $250,000 sale. And the only comment that came back afterwards from our mutual connection was people who sell that investment, people who sell investments that good don't drive cars that bad. And it stuck with me for yeah, that most client facing right. sale right. kind of thing. Right. And, and certainly like if you've got a longer time to build a relationship even if you do look the part, if you aren't the part on the inside, that's going to show through, whatever. Absolutely. But on that, like getting in the door factor, I think that sometimes it gets discounted. They're trying to make as many decisions as they can, as quick as they can. And if we're in, un- if we're in uniform or not, we're signaling to them. Anyways, yeah. that was my only point. I think, I think it's, you know, I think times are also changing, right? I don't know if you saw recently Kamala Harris is on the cover of Vogue in her Converse, right? In her tennis shoes, right? And I think times are changing, right? I think, you know, in the history of everything that was eccentric, is that, that we think is eccentric, there was a time when it wasn't, right? Like, I will say that delivering software for healthcare is eccentric right now. You know, using our platform to get better health, I think people think it's weird. And I think people think I am light years ahead. And I'll also tell you, I bet you if I looked more like you, we'd have way more money invested in this company. Mm. Right? I'm, I'm sad to say it, but it's true. You know, no, it's, I, it's I, interesting. I think it's an interesting point, but maybe a problem. Oh, it's a huge problem. It's mm-hmm. a huge problem. I don't mean I don't mean that people should accept it. I mean no, that no, I know. we I know. shouldn't as as when we're selling something. You know, it's an interesting study about that in the FBI is exactly like you said like even if statistically women pr- perform better medical outcomes as a, as a man I might want a male physician especially yeah. with like a male related issue or something, That's right? right? That's right. What they found in the FBI is when they put more like for instance black women on uh-huh. the hiring board. Uh-huh. They ended up with more black female special agents. No shock, right? 100%. And, and like, as much as we try to combat those biases, there's, there's like, without the, in, like, without the intentional focus on it, there's just something naturally human of like, when you go to the concert and you, like, if you go to a concert by yourself, you naturally want to hang out with somebody who you think might accept you kind of thing, right? Yeah, yeah and, I don't, you know, I, I guess... 
you know, but I there's don't... such advantages if you can overcome it. Like yeah. there's statistical advantages yeah. on teams from having diverse opinions of you don't That's get group the point, I think, you know what that, I mean? I think you've hit the nail on the head for me. See, I, so for example, and in our company, I am, you know, the owner of the company and, and 85% of our workforce is either women, minority, or both, right? 85%. I mean, that's unheard of in most industries, let alone healthcare. Now, the people making the decisions for healthcare from a political realm look nothing like me, right? So I think that's actually hurting the country. And I think healthcare is so divisive that we're going to have a new president who's going to change some things around. But ultimately, for me, it comes to exactly what you just said, which is, I am 100% sure I am not the smartest person in the room. And no matter what a person looks like or how that person wears a suit or a hoodie, something she says strikes me as, wow, that is super smart. I didn't think about it that way. I want that person to help me make this better. And that's 90% of the time how we how we hire in the end. Well, and the you know, the innovation literature shows really good results, not just for like age, ethnicity, gender, things like that, but like like if you have, you know, let's say you have a whole bunch of female minorities, but they're all accountants. Yes. You're not gonna get yeah. that much diversity that's right. that's in innovative right. thought. You're you know what I mean? Like think around the box. Yeah. It's got all the part, like all the positions. It's diversity in experience, diversity yeah. in training and all these yeah. things of like yes. You know, essentially, if we get stuck in groupthink, we're competing on better. Mm -hmm. And the problem of competing against our competitors on better is everybody can do something to get that extra little edge and then they go edge, you know what I mean? And you just, mm -hmm. it's this never ending knife fight of like mm -hmm. a little better, a little better. Mm -hmm. But when people are willing to go different, like, you know, that band, the Grateful Dead, right? Yeah. Like yeah. I wasn't, I wasn't a deadhead or anything, but right. I love their marketing. Right. Their, their, you know, founder, Jerry Garcia said, the goal wasn't to be the best. Their goal was to be the only. Only, yeah. And like when Led Zeppelin and Rolling Stones, everybody's making all their money off record albums. They're letting people record at their concerts for free and trade tapes. Doing like, this is, everybody knows this is not how you do the music business. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But they built such a family that that they they made like three it's like 350 million dollars off of the experience of mm -hmm. being part of the Grateful Dead. Yeah, right, right. Ended family. For them it was the experience, yep. And by being different, they, they didn't have to outspend the Rolling Stones. Mm -hmm. They didn't have to outspend so-and-so because mm -hmm. it wasn't this constant fight of, of better. Mm -hmm. They were willing to go different. Mm -hmm. And we don't get different thoughts from, from the same people. Yes. Right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and to your point, in the end, you take the best candidates, right? It doesn't matter how they appear. But to your point, I think you have to isolate what makes you different. You know, in the beginning... When we first started talking, you you had talked to me about being, you know, having lofty goals and being optimistic, right? I think, yes, I am over-optimistic. In the end, people, every day someone tells me, what you want is too much. What you want, it's too hard. What you want, you won't get that this year. What you want, aren't you paying attention, right? We're in the middle of a pandemic. I know all of that to be true. I understand, you know, but I do know, again, and I say this probably once a day in the history of everything that exists now, there was a time when it didn't, right? And I'm very comfortable being a part of that time of figuring it out and getting there next. I understand it. I might even fail, right? I wake up every morning thinking, do I have the best people? Am I failing? Am I doing good for patients? Every morning, I have the same thought. And every night I go to bed thinking, yes, I worked my hardest. I did my best. 
So did my team. We are making progress. So I think that is also a part of, you know, our, our industries are different and there are many industries that are very different from healthcare. But in the end, I, I think I've always believed that if you do what's right, even if it's hard, you will make, you will make an, you will have an effect. Right. And so that's where my, my head has all been, always been at. Maybe it sounds a little too cheesy and entrepreneurial, you know, and, and I'm full of nonsense. Right. But I will say that's how I've done it for nearly seven years. It's, it's coming, it's coming along. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. The guy who built the first online music business yeah. long before iTunes, his name's Derek Sivers. He's got some mm-hmm. great Ted talks and a book and stuff. He says that he feels like you don't really need to worry about, he's, he's giving advice for entrepreneurs on what business should they be doing. Yes. Like this. And it kind of lines up with what you're saying, I think. And feel free to correct me. But he says, you don't need to worry about what makes money. You need to worry about how much service you can provide to somebody yes. because money is a natural byproduct of service. And he says, paradoxically, you can know how much service you provided if people are willing to give you money or not. Precisely. So, so worry about worry <laughs> about how much service and your measuring stick is will they will they give you money or not? That's how that's you know. Right. That's right. That's and I right. thought it was like such an incredibly simple but yet powerful. It's super wise. It's super wise. But look, I also think there's confusion about what provides service, right? Mm. To give you an example, on my street there are these scooters, right? The the you know the mechanical scooters that you can put a credit card in and go around town, right? Now they're broken, they're being mistreated, right? They're not being used, which causes me pain. I'm not even an investor in these companies, but I hate seeing their their hardware broken and mistreated. Does that provide a service? I don't know. Now those companies at one point were the darling, right? Were the darling of fundraising here in Los Angeles. And I, I can't say to you that I really understood how that was more important than healthcare, right? Now, if you look at ride sharing, I mean, the industry of ride sharing has changed the world in monumental ways. I completely get it. We need it. As soon as everyone is vaccinated, those companies will be busy like hell again, right? So I think there's also in tech, there are darlings. I can't say I understand them, right? I will not tell you I'm I'm excellent at getting why certain things that don't really provide a quote, service are very well funded. Well, but that goes back to this, that goes back to the emotional aspect of human yes. purchasing, right? You know, the the books on speculation are very interesting. If you go back through like, not just the 1900s, but the 1800s and the 1700s, yeah. and you look at like these crazy manias, these bubbles, like, you know, in, in Holland, when people thought that tulip bulbs were going to be worth so much more and they were yeah. speculators, like you could, I can't remember the statistic, but it's something like, for a bucket full of tulip bulbs, you could buy a very, very large home. Wow. <laughs> you know I mean, wow. right? When, when this psyche and this herd mentality and this like, I actually have a theory and I'm interested if you disagree with me or, mm-hmm. or see it the same. Mm-hmm. I think that it has something to do with the, the human desire or, or like this thing that's baked into us for survival mm-hmm. where belonging to the group is really helpful for survival because if something goes wrong, the group would take care of you. Mm -hmm. And like this idea of like, as little kids, you know, the group is family, like keeping mom and dad happy is somewhat required for survival, right? (laughs) You know what I mean? Because food and shelter and everything. (laughs) And I'm just not sure we ever quite, quite outgrow it. Yeah. Think about like the irrational things we've all done in order to try to be acceptable from the people whose opinions we think matter. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, like I love it when people try to tell me, I just don't care what people think. It's like, (laughs) no, no, no. 
<laughs> you don't care what those people think. That's right. But all the other people yeah. with, you know, like all my other skater buddies, like we would like literally cut logos out of our shirts to make sure not to be seen with like a Gap <laughs> or a Polo logo on our shirt. Right, right, right. Please That's tell me funny. I don't care what people think of me. Uh, no, I don't care in the way that the what you think right. that the preppy jocks cared. Yes. They wanted, yes. in fact, they wanted a giant polo logo yes. on their shirt. Yes. Yes. I'm like, I went way down in the in the lower funny. corner, and I'm cutting it off. Right. That's funny. But, but to me, I wonder if there is this thing of there's some survival thing. There's some like group acceptability, and if if everybody else seems, if everybody whose opinions I think matter seems to think it's cool. Maybe this grants me some more acceptability to, to, to go along. And I don't think it's that conscious. Yeah. I don't know. It's a good thought. I mean, I'll tell you in the world of investments, I think you might be right. Right. Like he said, so I need to say, and then, you know, he also said, so I better say, I definitely think that exists. And I, I, you know, look, I think that particular way of thinking has worked very well for people who have investments in Facebook or Uber or Lyft, you know, I think it's, it, they've struck gold, right? I think healthcare is weird because healthcare, and I, I've heard my husband say this, and I, I think it's funny when he says it, but it's true. Healthcare and the need for it, it's kind of like a parking spot, right? When you don't need your healthcare, you just drive past all those parking spots. But when you need a parking spot and you don't have one, right, you feel screwed, you know? Yeah. And so, the, the one of the challenges that Heal will and does face is getting people to understand that using your healthcare is not because you're sick, but because you don't want to get sick. And right now, America's healthcare system, it is not made to prevent, it is made to handle what is about, you know, what so is what is making you sick. How do you re-educate the market? What does that look like? Is it just so starting with your own clients or what? That's exactly right, right? Like you are in Baton Rouge. Your health insurance wants me to deliver a house call. Well, I don't need it. Well, that's okay. Let me come to your house. Let me meet you. Let me get you set up on this software platform so that when you do need us, you are ready. Additionally, I'm going to do your physical and guess what? I found out that your blood sugar is high or that your blood pressure is high. Did you know? Patient says, I had no idea. And it's like, ooh, right? Now we have a problem that we can help. We can also prevent all the sequela of having that problem, right? So now we're actually having an interesting conversation. And, you know, again, it sounds ridiculous and petty, but prevention is one patient at a time, right? And it has to be the focus of the insurance payer, the patient, the modality of care, you know, in nine minutes, an office practice doctor is not helping you prevent. She is looking and saying, this is what I see. This is what I can do. Make another appointment. Good luck, right? That is not how you offer healthcare. So it is education. It is opportunities like the one you're giving me. It's press. It's the payers actually taking it seriously. It's Medicare taking it seriously. Medicare so, does yeah. not help us take care of patients. They help, they pay us after we did, right? Yeah. You know, I think that people comparing it to sickness care is, yeah. is probably a better label, right? Yeah. Yeah. So my question is, when you think about even just making a change with your own people, like, is this stuff that you can address through training where it's what your providers are saying every time they're in the home? What, what, what does that look like? That's exactly right. So when we, it starts at hiring, ironically, right? When we talk to a physician, 
who wants to work for us, if she says, listen, I don't really know how to prevent diabetes and I don't worry too much about people who smoke, let them do it, right? That isn't going to fit here. You know, if you have the opportunity to be in a patient's home and teach them and train them and become that source of wellness and education, we want to hire you, right? That is who we look for in a physician or a provider. And I have seen this. I have had physicians or providers or even engineers. I, I once you know, was speaking with an engineer who said to me, well, look, Renee, I don't believe in vaccination and you're not going to change me. And I said, well, let me show you the exit, right? You have wasted enough of your own time with me. I believe in vaccination. Don't, don't work here, right? We are not aligned in our thoughts and our ideas. And, and look, you think that this makes me popular? No, plenty of patients hate that I have certain views and plenty of physicians may not align with me, but that's okay. There are jobs and, and for those physicians and there are care offices for those patients, right? This just wouldn't be the right fit. And I, again, I'm very matter of fact about it. No, no feelings hurt, right? But it's all the training and the teaching. You know, I know we're kind of winding down here for time. One of the big themes we're talking about this year is how to help entrepreneurs think about the way they're growing their business that would make it easier to sell eventually, even if they're passing it on to the kids or selling to the employees, whatever that is. When you think about like systems where it's a, it's an owner of independent system, you know, where like the boss doesn't have to do everything yes. or yes. how new pay, like whatever those systems are. What, when you think about how you grow your business, what, what's one piece of advice you'd have for, you know, medical startups, medical innovation companies, if they want to get a higher multiple when they sell instead of a lower one, what's one of your pieces of advice? So, you know what? I don't think I have all the answers there because I think the pandemic has made, as you pointed out, healthcare startups so sexy right now and maybe not for the right reasons. But here's what I know. And I said it before, but I'll say it again. If you tune in to what a patient needs, you will provide a service. And if you provide a service that is needed, you will be funded, right? I'll give you an example. I see startups for back pain and back pain alone. I see startups for mental health and mental health alone, right? Heal does a lot of different things, but I see these, these, these focused startups. And I think, you know, it's great. It really is great. And there is a need for help in, in especially mental health, but absolutely for back pain, right? But what worries me a little bit is you're just solving one small problem. And as people copy your idea or as your idea becomes, you know, rectified with better software or better health measures, right? You aren't going to be able to scale and frankly exist, right? This is, this is the, the problem with telemedicine right now. If you notice, a lot of telemedicine companies are now trying to attach themselves to primary care efforts, right? This is because how, how much is a phone call helping you? It's not helping enough. So now let me see if the next best thing in diabetic care will help me succeed with my telemedicine effort. I don't know, right? Maybe too little, too late. So I would say on one hand, there's an element of focus, but on the other hand, you better make sure your focus lasts for the ages because you can be bought out or, you know, basically replaced with better software or better healthcare modality, right? Yeah. You know, you think about Warren Buffett says he likes buying businesses that have a have a high wall and a big moat yeah. around them. Yes. Right? Yes. 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 Well, listen, this has been great. Congratulations on all the success. Obviously, I think everybody should go to heal.com and check you guys out. Anything else you want to leave people with? 
Just keep in mind that we are still in the middle of flu season. It is not too late to get your flu shot, right? If you book on Heal and you schedule a physical, we'll also deliver your, your flu shots. And I do want all of your listeners to know we have applied and are trying to be able to administer the COVID vaccine. Mm. So if you are in markets in which we offer care and, and you keep in touch with us, we will let you know when we are able to deliver COVID vaccines to you. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. Very mm-hmm. cool. Well, thanks again. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really appreciate it. Yeah, you bet.